sin has become popular these days. Rather than being hidden in the shadows in shame in a back alley somewhere, it is now paraded down Main Street to the applause of the crowd. Have you noticed that the stars and starlets of Hollywood who receive the most attention are the ones who are most notorious in their immorality? Have you noticed that sin has been repackaged to look harmless? We don't even call it sin anymore for the most part. We use less offensive terms like indiscretions. Mistakes, shortcomings, imperfections. We've even come to laugh at sin. Yes, sin has been given a makeover. No matter how acceptable sin has become in our society, God still hates it. Now, now if you question this, all you have to do is look at the cross. Just survey the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will see what God the Father thinks about sin. Sin is a violation of the very nature and character of God. It's an affront to God. God and His holiness cannot tolerate sin. Now, God does love the sinner, no question about that. And again, look at the cross and you will see that is true. God loves the sinner so much that God has chosen to bear the penalty for sin so that the sinner might go free. And that's what the cross is all about. Now, in order to appropriate this this gift of salvation, you have to, by faith, receive Christ. You have to trust him with your life. And, And that happens when you acknowledge you're a sinner As we all are, the Bible says we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. When we acknowledge that and then by faith turn to Christ from our sin, that is, we say, I'm sorry for my sin, I don't want to do it anymore, and Lord, I turn to you for salvation. When we do that, the Bible says we become children of God. Those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. In order to see the importance of this and how this salvation has come to pass, I invite you to turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 27. Today we will look at an overview of verses 1 through 66. We won't look at all of these verses, but I do want you to see this section of Scripture because it is so important to our belief in the forgiveness of sin through Christ Jesus. This is a very moving passage to me as I read through it. I hope that you will pay careful attention on this Palm Sunday, understanding what Christ was facing when he rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. We begin our study this morning, Matthew chapter 27. Look with me, if you would, in verses 1 and 2. Now, when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate, the governor. This is speaking of one of the trials of Jesus. 
Jesus had more than one trial. This is only one reference here. There were six trials that Jesus endured on his way to the cross. Shortly after Jesus had exited the inner portion of the Garden of Gethsemane where he had prayed to the Father, he was greeted by Judas, one of his disciples. And Judas planted a kiss on his cheek. This was the means whereby he was delivered over to the mob who entered the garden that evening to arrest Jesus. They took him there to a place of trial. We know the first trial was before Annas, as recorded in John chapter 18, verses 12 through 14. Then there was a trial before Caiaphas, Matthew chapter 26, verses 57 through 68. Then Jesus was delivered before the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling body of the Jews. We can read about that in Matthew chapter 27, verses 1-2, as I read just a moment ago. And then Jesus was taken to stand before Pilate, the governor. John chapter 18, verses 28-38. through 38. Pilate delivered him over to Herod. Luke chapter 23, verses 6-12. through 12. And then Herod sent him back to Pilate, John chapter 18, verse 39, through chapter 19, verse 6. So these are the trials that Jesus endured. And by the way, some of these trials occurred at night, which was against the law. During these trials, he was falsely accused. He was mocked, ridiculed, abused, and that they slapped him. They hit him over the head with reeds. The Bible even says in the Old Testament that they pulled the beard from his face. These were some of the abuses inflicted on Jesus throughout these trials. Then ultimately, he was carried away to be crucified. Let's look more closely at some of the abuses. Let's look at the abuse of Jesus as in as is recorded in Matthew 27, verses 26 through 32. Let's look at verse 26. Let me read it for you. Then he released Barabbas for them, but after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. This, of course, is speaking about Pilate, who wanted to placate the Jews by releasing a prisoner before them. This was not that uncommon, especially on an occasion like the Passover. So Barabbas, who was an insurrectionist, stood before the crowd, and Jesus also stood there. And Pilate said, who would you have me to release, Barabbas or Jesus, which is called the Christ? He knew that for envy they had delivered him up for crucifixion. He knew that Jesus was innocent. So when he made this offer, he must have been surprised to learn that the crowd began to shout, Release Barabbas. You see, the the religious leaders had made their way through the crowd and had convinced the people to turn against Jesus and to ask for Barabbas to be released. And Pilate said, well, what will you have me to do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? And they all begin to shout, crucify him, 
Crucify him. Crucify him. So Jesus is sent by Pilate to be scourged. We read that here in verse 26. Scourging was not uncommon. The Romans had perfected it. They took a whip that had pieces of leather. In the end of the leather leather were pieces of bone, glass, and metal. They would tie the victim to a post, take off his garment, and 39 times they would wrap that whip around the body and pull it. When the whip came around the flesh of the body, it would dig in with that metal and glass and bone. It would dig in and rip the flesh open when it was pulled back. 39 times Jesus was hit, beaten with this whip. 39 times. Some people never made it to the cross because they would become disemboweled from the beating. Or they would lose so much blood and become so weakened they would die before they were crucified. Jesus was scourged. But not only that, he was mocked and assaulted. Look in verse 27. Here we read, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. They stripped him, put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they knelt down, they knelt down and, and they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! They spat on him and took the reed and began to beat him on the head. The scarlet robe was a symbol of royalty. When they wrapped him around the body of Jesus, they did that not to acknowledge his kingship, but to mock him. Having planted a crown of thorns on his head and gave him a reed to hold in his hand, they bowed before him in a mocking fashion to ridicule him. Then the Bible says they delivered him up to be crucified, verse 31, and after they had mocked him and took the scarlet robe off of him, they put his own garments back on him and led him away to be crucified. And as they were coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, who they pressed into service to bear his cross. Jesus, at this point, having been up all night, no food, perhaps no no water, having been beaten beyond recognition, now they put this cross beam on his back and, and they demand that he walk down the Via de Dolorosa, the way of suffering, to Golgotha, which is located outside the city gates. This was on a main thoroughfare. The Romans staged it in that way as to intimidate the populace. They did not want any type of insurrection to occur or any type of attack against the Romans or against the government. So this was in a place that everyone could see. Jesus, having lost so much blood and so weakened, he falls beneath the weight of the cross. And finally, 
this man of Cyrene, Simon by name, they compelled to bear the cross. As he continues to make his way to Golgotha, we begin to see not only the abuse of Jesus, but now we reach this place of the skull, Golgotha, the place of crucifixion. And notice, if you would, the crucifixion of Jesus. Let's begin to read in verse 33 as he arrives at Golgotha. And when they had come to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall. And after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. My a wine mixed with gall was a, a narcotic-based drink that was used to deaden the pain. Jesus, when he tasted thereof, he would not drink it because he wanted all of his mental faculties in place in order to experience the pain and suffering and separation that you and I deserve. He was dying in your place and my place. So he refused to drink it. And then he was nailed to the cross, we are told in verses 35 and following. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. Here Jesus, when he is placed on the cross, they take the spike and they most likely drove it into the wrist. They knew how to do that to miss the artery and also to provide some stability as the victim was hanging on the cross. Sometimes they would attach the, the hand with a rope or something to make it more secure so it wouldn't rip through the flesh. But it was an agonizing experience. That's why they used crucifixion because it was so humiliating and painful. And it took a while for the victim to die. So they, they nail these spikes in his wrist and in his feet and then they're hoisting up between heaven and earth and the bible says that they did the worst thing you possibly can do to jesus you see the worst thing you can do against christ is not the beating it's not the humiliation it's not the cursing the ridicule the false accusations it's not the scourging it's not even the crucifixion The worst thing you possibly can do against Jesus is found in verse 36. And sitting down, they begin to keep watch over him there. In other words, they sat down and they watched Jesus slowly die. Every time we think about the cross... And we do nothing in response. We are essentially doing the same thing they did so long ago in sitting down and watching him die. How many times have you heard about the crucifixion of Jesus but you've done nothing? You've heard about Christ's love for you and and his desire to, to cleanse you from sin and to reconcile you to God the Father. But you've done nothing. The worst thing you could do against Jesus is to sit and do nothing in light of the glorious gospel that he has provided. 
And then we read in verse 37, and they put above his head the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. The Bible tells us in verse 38 through 40 that they hung him between two thieves. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, and one was on the right and one was on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. When Jesus was crucified, there was a a thief on either side of Jesus who had been condemned to die as well. And by the way, this was a fulfillment of prophecy. And all through this chapter, I wish I had time to show you the prophecies being fulfilled in all these statements. Hundreds of prophecies written about who the Messiah would be before he was even born. Many of those dealt with his crucifixion. Isaiah 53 being one passage that is just an amazing text to read. Written some 700 years before Jesus' crucifixion. But here he's crucified between two thieves. And initially they're both deriding Jesus and they're, they're hurling abuses at him. And they're saying, if, if you're ridding the Christ, take us down from the cross. But during the process of those hours where Jesus was suffering, one of those thieves began to say, wait a minute. Why are you saying this? We deserve to die, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he looks to Jesus and he says, Will you remember me when you go into your kingdom? And Jesus, with compassion in his eyes, responded and said, Today, you will be with me in paradise. While Jesus is dying on the cross for you, He takes time to reach out to this dying man beside him and leads him to faith and offers him forgiveness and assures him of eternal life. Notice he didn't tell this man, well, if you can come off the cross and go to church and be baptized, we'll talk about it. If if you can start a better life and begin to behave the way you should, and go back and and try to make amends for all the things you've done wrong, then, then I'll consider it. No, this man had absolutely nothing to offer. And neither do we. We have nothing to offer him to earn our salvation. It's a gift. Received by faith alone. In the finished work of Christ at the cross. Jesus shows this great pity and compassion. For this man just the way he does for us as well. And all beneath the cross they're beginning as they're walking by. People are making fun of Christ. They're abusing him verbally. And they say you said you could destroy the temple and and rebuild it in three days. Well save yourself. Well Jesus was not talking about the temple there on the temple mount. He was referring to his own body. 
when destroyed, being raised from the dead in three days. And he's going to demonstrate that, by the way, after his death. So he is mocked by others as well. Look in verse 41, and in the same way, the chief priests... Also, along with the scribes and the elders, these are, are the religious people. They are, they're mocking him and saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him. For he said, I'm the son of God. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. And then we come to verse 45 as we see the death of Jesus begins. Notice what happens surrounding his death. There's darkness around the cross. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. The first hour was considered 7 a.m. The second hour, 8 a.m. The third hour, 9 a.m. 9 a.m. is when Jesus was nailed to the cross. The sixth hour would be 12. That's noon. That's the midpoint of Jesus' time on the cross. Because as I mentioned, he was there for six hours dying. So this is the midpoint of the crucifixion. And all of a sudden, at the very midday at noon, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. That is, until Jesus died. It became extremely dark. It's as if God the Father turned the lights out of heaven to conceal what was happening. And then we read... Notice there's a cry from the cross. Verse 46, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama shabbatheni, that is my God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? This is actually a quotation from Psalm 22, verse 1. Messianic psalm. Jesus is crying out, and I believe this is the very reason he was in the Garden of Gethsemane asking God, the Father, if there's any way possible, let this cup pass from me. The cup, I believe, was the cup of judgment. At this point, the full fury of God the Father was being poured out on his sinless Son because of our sins. God the Father had turned from the Son. He, he allowed Him to experience all the pain and all the separation, all the judgment that you and I deserve for the sins we commit. Jesus felt that separation. He felt that humiliation. He felt the weight of sin upon Him. Think about the sins that we commit. Lying. Lust, pride, stealing, adultery, fornication, homosexuality, transgenderism, 
murder, rape, unforgiveness, hatred, racism. The list goes on and on and on and on. Sins that we categorize and we say, well, it's not really that bad. In light of holy God who is pure in all of his ways, it's repulsive. But God in his love is making a sacrifice so that we could be forgiven of our sins. So that we could be set free from all that we've done. Verse 47 says, and some of those who were standing there when they heard it began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him for a drink. And the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. We read in the other Gospels that when Jesus died, he said, it is finished. Into your hands I commend my spirit. And he dies. The death of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us something in verse 51 that's very interesting. It says the temple veil was torn in two from the top to the bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split There were miracles that occurred during that time. And one was the splitting, the ripping of that that veil. The veil was the curtain. It was was not like like a flimsy curtain. It was a four-inch thick curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place, the holy of holies. Into the holy of holies, only one person per year, the high priest, could go to make a Atonement for the sins of the people. Yom Kippur is is what it's called. Where he would go in and make sacrifices for the people. But he had to himself be clean before he went in there. Or he would die there. You couldn't just walk into the Holy of Holies. But when Jesus died. This veil was ripped. It was God's way of saying that. You're now welcome into my presence. Through Christ Jesus. We read about this in the book of Hebrews. Where Jesus, when he died, his death enables us now to be reconciled to God and be in union with him and fellowship with him. The earth was quaking. The veil was ripped. The Bible also tells us, here are some other miracles that occurred. If you'll notice with me in verse 52. Very interesting statement here in verses 52 and 53. The tombs were open and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep, that is who had died, were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. This was another way of God confirming that this is the Christ, that that his death and his resurrection enables others to be raised. And this is a foretaste of what ultimately will happen at that great resurrection morning. If you've had someone close to you to die recently, or friend, or family member, 
I'm telling you, if they knew the Lord Jesus Christ, there would be the resurrection of the righteous. If you don't know the Lord Jesus, you too will be raised. It's called the resurrection unto damnation. But Jesus has paid the penalty so that we could be raised to life and live with him eternally. Then we see the Jesus recognized as the son of God, verse 54. Now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening became frightened and said, truly, this was the son of God. Now, let me tell you, it took something to make a centurion soldier frightened. A Roman soldier to be frightened, you, you, had, to really, you had to really do something spectacular. And, and here the centurion is frightened and says, surely this is the Son of God. And then notice the women watch from a distance. We see this in verses uh, 55 and 56. Mary or I should say many women were there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee while ministering to him. Among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. So there were women there in support of Jesus. And then finally we come to the burial of Jesus. I won't read all these verses, but I do want to point them out to you. Verses 50. Or 57 through 58 speak about Joseph asking for and receiving the body of Christ. And then verses 59 through 61, the body of Jesus was placed in the tomb, that borrowed tomb. And then verses 62 through 66, the tomb was sealed and a guard was placed there in order that no one disturbed the body. The burial of Jesus. The tomb was dark and silent. After three days, all hope had drained from the hearts of Jesus' followers. Then suddenly, something started stirring in the tomb. I like what Robert Lowry, how he described it. He said, low in the grave he lay. Jesus, my Savior. Waiting the coming day, Jesus my Lord. Vainly they watched his bed, Jesus my Savior. Vainly they sealed the dead, Jesus my Lord. Death cannot keep his prey, Jesus my Savior. He tore the bars away, Jesus my Lord. Up from the grave he arose, With a mighty triumph o'er his foes, he arose a victor from the dark domain, and he lives forever with the saints to reign. He arose, he arose, hallelujah, Christ arose. In order to get to the resurrection, Jesus had to go through Mount Calvary. In order for there to be a resurrection, there had to be a crucifixion. Today we're, we're thinking about and talking about and, and imagining what it was like for Jesus to die on the cross. But I'm telling you, next week we're going to be celebrating his resurrection. But at this time, 
Jesus, before his crucifixion, was with his disciples in the upper room. He knew what was coming. He knew what I've just described would arrive in just hours. And he would feel the pain and agony of the, of the crucifixion and the separation. But they're spending those last intimate moments with his disciples before all of this transpired. He celebrated the Feast of Passover with his disciples. The Passover, of course, dates back to the time of the Exodus where, where God told his people to put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost and the death angel would pass over. That was a picture of Jesus, the Lamb of God, who died on the cross. And if you and I are covered with the blood of Christ, that is, if we have received by faith His sacrificial work at Calvary through His death and resurrection, then we will be covered. Our sins will be taken away. And we will be in right relationship with God who is holy and just. And so Jesus is sharing this Passover meal with his disciples. And this is where he inaugurates the Lord's Supper that we are about to observe. I think about what Paul wrote in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. When he told the church at Corinth, which applies to us as well, that before we participate in the Lord's Supper, it's very important we examine ourselves. Now, this is something we need to do daily, and I I do it daily. I do examine myself in light of the Holy Scriptures and the the Holy Spirit. And I must confess to you, there's not a day that goes by that I don't have to confess something to the Lord. I'm thankful that my salvation is sure. I've been forgiven of my sins, past, present, and future. But still, there are times in my life as a Christian that I fall and I sin, and I have to confess it to God and ask God's and that's God's restoration of fellowship. Because sin is an offense to God. And that's what we need to do. We should not glibly come in and participate in the Lord's Supper in a perfunctory way. We, we must come to the table of the Lord and ask God's cleansing. And so this is a time of preparation. And with heads bowed and eyes closed, what I'm going to ask you to do, for those of you who are baptized believers who will be participating in the Lord's Supper, I would ask you to search your hearts in light of the Scriptures, in light of the Holy Spirit, and if there's any sin that's in your life, any sin, would you confess that to God and turn from that sin in repentance? Use these next few moments to do just that, to prepare your hearts for the Lord's Supper.